Hi, and welcome back to the Mind Talk podcast with myself, Edwin and Montel. Today's guest is coming from the world of athletics. He's a coach. He's a fantastic coach. He coaches hurdlers and sprinters, and he's also coached the fastest man over 110 meters hurdles. Andreas Bame, how are you doing? Yeah, thank you so much. Awesome. We're doing a across the Atlantic connection here from from Atlanta all the way to the UK. So I'm excited. Thanks for having me. No, thanks again for joining us. So I know you've spoken about this um, on other platforms, but for the Mind Talk listeners, give us a brief background on how your sporting journey began. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, first, I have to answer your question with a question. Why am I even here? We have Montel Douglas as the co-host, you know, former British record holder, Summer and winter Olympian. I should be asking her questions. You might need to flip this all the way around. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, you're too so. kind. You're too kind. You're too kind. Well, maybe that's for another another show. I don't know if you, the time will be more than happy to kick back with you. But you are the star for today, for sure. <laughs> Want to well, tap into your knowledge right there because there's so much in there to unpack. Well, what what was clear early from an early on age on for me was that I was unfortunately not an athletic star. That was fairly obvious to me as a child. Um, I grew up playing in Europe. I grew up playing, I did a little bit of judo. I did primarily soccer and then tennis. And I was markedly average at all those things. So nothing in my sporting career ever indicated, regardless of how much that is a dream of pretty much any young, you know, adolescent boy growing up, uh, becoming a professional athlete so you know from that standpoint that's kind of how I ended up being a coach I I loved sport I knew I wanted to be involved in sport in some fashion but I also while I still enjoyed playing I realized fairly early early on that there were many many people way more athletic and way more skilled than I were at all the sports that I was trying so so would you would you say that was primarily the main reason why you ventured into coaching? Did you always Im- envision yourself being a great coach um, or something that you kind of stumbled upon just because you realized that you, you mentioned your own words about your athletic prowess? You thought maybe this isn't my bag, but maybe coaching could be. Well, initially, really what I thought I wanted to do was I wanted to be a general manager or work in like a team front office so I could kind of put together a team and be a part of an organization that way. It was really never my goal to actually be a coach. But along the way, when I went to university to study sports, I uh, realized if I could identify the best movers and the fastest athletes, that would help me identify talent when I'm a general manager. And so I volunteered with the track team um, my time there. And that's kind of how I fell in love with coaching and track and field. I really didn't know much beyond track and field other than, you know, like everyone else watching some of the bigger meets on TV or for sure watching the Olympics. Uh, But I knew track was the purest form of movement. So if I could understand speed and running and jumping, I would be able to identify the best talent, I thought, in my mind, for other sports. And that's kind of how I stumbled into actually coaching, because once I got there, I realized, hey, I actually like the interaction with the athletes i like helping them achieve their uh, work towards their aspirations and i like the combination of like art and science and interpersonal you know relationships that you have 
with all these individuals and you're not stuck in an office all day. You get to be outdoors for, you know, half the day at least and coach in the fresh air. So that seems like a winning combination to me. Definitely. So you coach sprinters and you coach hurdlers. And as a coach, you would prepare an athlete physically, but also mentally. So for this particular question, I'm going to focus more on hurdling. So what are the type of things you would say to some of the athletes that you coach to prepare them to have a resilient mindset? Yeah, so I think that really comes down to beyond just hurdling, first and foremost, comes down to just knowing the individual. You have to get to know your athletes on a you know individual and personal level because then kind of when you understand their background, their journey, their way of thinking, and also their way of learning, then you can start, you know, communicating with them and trying to build different frameworks to help them be more and more, you know, proficient in their sport. And I mean, hurdling in and of itself almost has to have some resiliency built into it because any hurdler will tell you everyone's wiped out and crashed at some point and taken a pretty horrible spill. Um, you know, everyone's clipped a hurdle in a race and the other seven competitors in the race have blown right past you. So I think from an inherent standpoint, you have to bring some of that with you in order to even want to attempt the hurdles in the first place and then also be successful in them. I think that's a great point there that you made there about being specific in terms of the hurdlers and because when you when you cross different events, there is different mindsets, of course. I, I started off actually high jumping. And when you start realizing that you actually end in failure most of the time, it's a really different mindset than when you're trying to run for a time where you're chasing, you're, you're climbing, literally climbing barriers. I mean, I just watched on Instagram just now the the Olympic the world record holder and Olympic um champion racing each other in the sprint hurdles meet recently and the mindset all I saw was just the mindset to have that competition they were right next to each other the female hurdlers is that's in, that's quite an insane thing do you do you think that then because you've you see specifically with hurdling um, and different events do you think there are like common themes that you find in terms of mindset how they've got things they've got to overcome that are similar to each other amongst athletes well for sure i mean and maybe you can speak to this in sprinting versus bobsledding you know if you're a sprinter probably the worst things that can happen to you are either you know hopefully never you know someone pulls up in a race or you get embarrassed and you just don't do very well and you get beat. But if you're a hurdler, obviously there's the additional risk of potential serious injury if something goes catastrophically wrong because you're running into, you know, set barriers. So, I mean, one thing we really focus on is simply also from a resiliency and confidence standpoint is just really trying to instill the idea of competence in training making sure that from a rhythmic standpoint, they understand what they need to do, making sure from a perceptual standpoint, the hurdlers will come, hurdles will come at you really, really fast. You have to make sure that the athlete realizes this and also kind of build them and continue to train them to be adept at that perceptual skill as well. That then helps instill the confidence in them to go out there and perform at a high level. So the, the confidence part starts in training by building up the skill level and the competence of the event, which then translates to, you know, being excited to race and feeling good about yourself when you go to the track. Now, question to you, Monty, is obviously in sprinting, like we said, those are kind of the two risks, right? You either, unfortunately, could, you know, pull something or you you just don't run a good race. But if you, you go bobsledding, 
that thing can go flying off that. the track as we've seen. So what, what was the difference in mindset for yeah. you from sprinting versus bobsledding? I think that's a very apt comparison to hurdling. It is, you're right. And I mean, you could die. Like that was literally my first question. <laughs> and my only question actually doing bobsleigh, like realistically, I was like, can I die? And looked at the coach and he looked at me and was like, mm, no, you'll be fine. And I, and that's what gave me the confidence to actually even just say yes and go down. Um, but it is definitely a completely different challenge having to do exactly what you do. So essentially, you know, I run fast in a straight line for a very short distance. But when you've got the conditions, I'm talking about like minus 20 degree weather, that's also consideration. Environment, warm-ups is completely different. Um, the fact that I'm, I'm now in a team sport, that there's someone else that has a complete ownership of my life in their hands at that time. It's also another added variable when I'm doing bobsleigh compared to just running the 100. I'm in my own lane doing my own thing. I really have a role in bobsleigh to do but then there is someone else that has to do their job as well in order for my safety and not just our performance so it is a complete it's completely different although the skill sets are the same um but I think just what's similar as well to, to hurdling and, and bobster is that comparable to um sprinting in a straight line essentially you you have to be there's not an element of that fearlessness you don't have because you don't really have to be fearless to, to sprint you have to go for it but when you have an extreme sport or something that's really full of adrenaline, running at barriers, you have to be fearless because at some point you have to jump out the plane. And it's the same um, analogy when doing bobsleigh. At some point, you just have to push the sled, jump in and hold on for dear life uh, because that's the only way to get down. And it's definitely the only way to get down fast. Yeah, in interesting comparison there. Yeah, I mean, I think the goal in a hurdling too is to get the athlete to a point where it's almost on autopilot. They're not having to consciously think about too many things it's all just very rhythmical and just you know autonomous recall that just happens so we're trying to go from something that's you know very front brain to more hind brain activity and again it's just autopilot and that generally makes it more reflexive and faster to begin with if you're having to think about every tiny minute thing you're trying to do chances are you you, you won't be able to keep up and that's when something will go haywire Andres, you said something really interesting there, which was autopilot. So have you ever had an athlete in the past where their autopilot's not working and they're going through a period where they keep on hitting hurdles, race after race? What, what are the type of things you would say to athlete in that situation to help them build mental toughness to overcome those situations? Yeah, well, I think, um, so first off, I guess a very interesting feature of athletes who I know have experienced this autopilot Oftentimes, when you ask them about feedback for the race after the fact or a really good practice rep, they'll say, oh, I don't know. I, I just everything is just completely blank or it's a blur. They won't be able to feedback on it. And, you know, as a young coach, initially, I thought, oh, well, you know, why can't they they can't feel anything or what's going on? That's kind of weird. Weren't they paying attention? Weren't you focused? But it's actually it's just it's not that they weren't focused. It's actually just like a different kind of focus. And so. I think particularly for hurdling, because it's such a rhythmic and repetitive activity, like we focus a lot on in trying to build kind of this, these, you know, this autopilot, we work on a lot of rhythmic work, which then again, just kind of becomes like an ingrained dance move. We've all, you know, we've all heard a song that we like, and we're just kind of nodding our head to it without even realizing that we're doing it. So I think that's kind of part of helping particular, in particular hurdlers or athletes who have a particularly rhythmic event start to kind of build some of that kind of, you know, basically not even consciously 
trying to flow through the event. Again, it's basically, it's kind of what people I would say call, you know, flow state to a certain extent, right? You're just kind of in that moment, experiencing that event. And sometimes certain athletes just once they're in that don't have much, uh, you know, don't really experience much of it until it's actually done, which is really interesting. Yeah. And and there's the ones as well then that, that are not in flow state at all <laughs> because at some point you do and I'm, I'm sure you found and correct me if I'm wrong and let, and let us know that especially when you're developing athletes you've got younger athletes or just athletes that are still growing keeping them hungry motivated for success like you, there's a lot of failure you have to keep failing to get to to, to win um and that's just in their own development like how do you deal with that as a coach because everyone's at different stages they all want things at different times and they will progress at different speeds as well so how do you balance that those that maybe i really find it really challenge, challenging to keep working at their prowess at their task as opposed to focusing on whether they're actually winning a race or whether they're getting something good a good time yeah so i, th I think that's a really good point and, and, and kind of series of questions there um you know, I, I would start by saying that I try not to put any limits on an athlete, right, in terms of what they can do. Because I think that's, you know, your job as a coach is to try to help them maybe even go beyond what they actually even think they are personally capable of. But at the same time, you kind of have to frame it in a way that is also realistic or set like realistic baby steps along the way. If someone comes to you as a youngster and they want to win an Olympic medal or break a world record. Who are you to say that they can't do that? But if that's your sole goal, any small, you know, incremental progress that they make, they won't really be satisfied with. And it just becomes a task of just dissatisfaction after dissatisfaction because they haven't reached this one big goal. So I think finding incremental steps along the way, uh, we talk a lot about like not just trying to set a personal best, but also working within your top 10 list. If you have a top 10 list of times that you've run, just try to get close to the 10th best time you've run and then try to keep knocking off and improving your top 10 list throughout a season. Because chances are, if you're running within your top 10, at some point you've put yourself in a position to maybe hit a, you know, a personal best uh, and kind of trumping and praising not just one ultimate outcome, even though we realize that's kind of the ultimate goal in athletics, but also praising... Um, you know, consistency and making sure that an athlete understands that consistency is also a form of excellence and that will hopefully also lead to breakthrough. And I think the second thing is also just reframing the race, not just making it 100% outcome-based all the time. Certainly there are races that it has to be outcome-based, right? Without question. But maybe you go into the race and you have different objectives. You say, hey, if you work on this our goal is to work on this particular technical aspect of your race and if you do that even though you know it it didn't show in the time yet but you can get that installed for future races this will benefit you and that's actually a win as opposed to obsessing about the you know obsessing about the time or talking to an athlete about how what mindset did you go into the race with were you focused were you calm you know did you were you kind of in the right state of arousal to perform well because some athletes don't even know how to get themselves to the line in a proper mind frame to actually compete well. So setting other objectives for the athlete that are not solely outcome based, especially for youngsters, I think is very helpful in, you know, their development. 
So Andres, we're going to look a little bit at some of the things you may say to athletes just before a race. So let's just say in terms of preparation, physically, they are in the best shape they can be in their life. They're, they're, everything is going well. What are the type of things that you would say to them that will help them mentally before a big race? Yeah, well, that's really where it comes down to knowing your athlete, right? And kind of their general state of arousal and what they need before a race. So, you know, if you have someone who's super excited and almost like too excited, you may actually have to bring them back down a little bit. That can be either through the way you're communicating with them and you, you just particularly remaining very calm yourself just to kind of project an aura of calmness with the athlete, assuming you are with the athlete, or imparting certain self-talk that the athlete can implement uh, you know, for themselves to kind of keep themselves calm. And then on the flip side, you might have someone who's so chill they may actually need a bit of you know, getting a little hype before a race. So then again, maybe it comes down to you know, music selection, uh, the way you're talking to the athlete, their own personal self-talk, um, how you're how you're structuring their warm up. If you need someone to calm down, maybe you have you allow for a lot of breaks in the warm up, so they're not just going harder, 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 harder. But they have periods where they can like decompress, calm down, you know, relax themselves a little bit. Where if you have someone who needs to get excited or really needs to ramp up what they're doing, you kind of structure the warm up, their music, their self talk, what you're telling them in a manner that's kind of ascending, so that by the time it comes to race time you know, they're fully engaged and good to go. So I think those are two, you know, varying options and obviously two different ends of a spectrum. And, you know, most people fall somewhere in between those to, uh, you know, to a certain degree. Um, so in terms of the, the, apart from the mental techniques and the things that you're going to, you're going to give them, they're going to develop themselves. Um, there's one thing that the common thing, I even got asked it yesterday by two young girls and um, always ask, do you get nervous before your race? Do you get nervous doing bobsleigh? And to be honest, it was very different for both events because I think they, they, they needed different mm. types of me <laughs> ready to, ready to race. And I found that and through experience just being in track for so long that, I cha it, it definitely changed the way I thought about my performance anxiety, how I work with things. So just in, in your experience and things, um, how do you address that as a coach? Um, how do you help them prepare for it? What kind of things do you help them um, employ to help them succeed? Do you tell them specific techniques or is it something you also help them figure out on their own how to balance that? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to a couple of things we, you know, we, we just mentioned, but I'll give you another specific technique. And for sure, you know, race anxiety and performance anxiety, you know, it can be a very real and debilitating thing. Um, and, you know, I think, again, it comes down to kind of how are you structuring their warm up if you know that they're an anxious person? You know, how are you uh, how are you talking to them as a coach before the competition? What uh, self-talk are they doing? Um, you know, what music are they listening to, for example? Maybe they need something that's a little more calming. Uh, one thing we also talk about that I learned from uh, good friends Rob Wilson and Brian McKenzie is if you have someone who's super anxious, oftentimes it's because they almost have like tunnel vision. They're so focused on themselves, they don't, can't really look outward. So what we've found very helpful is to actually just widen your gaze. Just take a minute and look off into the distance and widen your gaze. And I, I can't give you these specifics as to you know why it works, but something about widening your gaze and taking that focus off of yourself is very calming. And I know a lot of, I know several other athletes have used this technique 
uh, you know, who tend to get anxious before races and that's helped them quite a bit. So it's basically just getting out of your own like super narrow window of focus and just kind of opening yourself up a little bit. And again, just looking off into the distance, widening your gaze. Um, and that has a very calming effect. So we have had athletes try that and do that, you know, like a couple of times before race pretty helpfully. Right. And I mean, those are simple things. I'll also say that, you know, these are things that coaches can employ. If you have an athlete, you know, we're also smart enough to know that we don't know everything and we have a big network. So we're also not afraid to refer an athlete out to a specialist if that is, you know, if that is, uh, you know, required of help, right? I think it's also dangerous for coach to think they can solve any and all mental problems, especially as it relates to anxiety. So, you know, I, I do want to state and encourage that I do think it's important to recognize your own limitations and when necessary, refer out to a, you know, a, a you know, trusted practitioner. I just wanted to, sorry, I just wanted to comment on that. Um, it's really interesting that you use the widening of the gaze to kind of refocus in. Cause I know that, you know, many athletes are so hyper-focused on external factors, like the lane they're in, who's in the race, what did they run? What did I run last? Where do I have to come? There's so many things that take them away from being tunnel visioned um, and you kind of really want to refocus them. So it's really interesting to hear that as a reverse technique almost to say, well, actually you're too much in your own head. We need to get you thinking about a bigger picture here and just absorbing the environment. Cause I know that particularly at a high level, like for example, Olympic games, having that first moment when you walk out and you hear you, you can hear the roar and you don't really look up at it and then you look up and you see you know almost 100,000 people staring at you in cameras that can be very intimidating even though it's the same track the same tartan the same spikes that you want in the same 100 meters it's a completely different perception to have that many eyes on and that much you know perceived pressure so having in that actually I'm going to face it head on almost that kind of just embracing that um it's, it's just really interesting to hear that yeah and i mean sometimes you can't sometimes there's no preparing an athlete for that right like um we've had athletes go out to their first olympic games and you see them you see them on tv you know you're watching in the coaching area usually they have like a huge uh you know like monitor set up so coaches can watch and they're just out there looking around and i think you know, one thing we talk to athletes about too is, and this applies to life in general, like there's no substitute for, you know, experience in terms of building confidence and comfort level. The example I often use is, say you, you're new to a city, right? And you're, you're going around the city for the first time. Well, everything is new. You don't know the streets names. You don't know, you know, you don't know any of the people. You don't know where any of the shops are. You don't know where anything is located. And as you keep continuing to walk through that city more and more and more, all of a sudden, you don't, need to, you don't need a map to navigate anything anymore because you know the streets. You know, all the comfort level just continues to increase. So sometimes there's no substitute for going something, going through something or having an experience to kind of build a level of comfort. We can talk about it as much as we want, but until someone actually goes through it to a certain extent, um, I think sometimes that's hard. So yeah, experience builds comfort or can help at least help in building comfort, which is then the goal of the objective of the coach is to try to expose an athlete to, you know, as many things as possible and broaden their experience and broaden their understanding of what's going on and what's happening. So Andres, I'm going to ask a question, which I don't think really gets discussed 
a lot about. So let's say you have an athlete where they are extremely confident, they're very positive in terms of self-talk. Um, and that could be based on results from a previous season. What would you say to keep them grounded and let's say not become complacent about the task ahead and keep them focused on what they need to do to maintain or even better that level? Well, I mean, some of that is pretty inherent in the sport, right? And I will say that I feel like a tiny bit of healthy delusion <laughs> might not be a bad thing, right? Like you have to believe in yourself. If you, I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but it's obviously cliche because it's kind of true. If you believe that you can do something, you probably can. <laughs> the chances are greater that you'll be able to, but if you don't believe you will be able to, you definitely, you definitely right. likely will not do it, right? Yeah. So, you know, so a little bit of healthy delusion that isn't just, you know, in complete grandeur, I think actually isn't a bad thing for an athlete. So, but inherent <laughs> in the sport, I think you get knocked back down to reality really quick because you can think you're great, but if the results don't reflect that, then I think that is a, you know, that is then an immediate talking point between coach and athlete, right? What you don't want to have happen is have their expectation or delusion be so large that they're never going to be able to achieve that. And then it just becomes, again, a repetitive cycle mm -hmm. of them feeling like a failure. So again, it comes down to kind of finding, managing expectations, finding achievable goals and stepping stones along the way for the athlete to kind of build towards what they're, you know, what they're after. And that's, um, that's one of my favorite quotes. Actually, my, the favorite quote that I use by Henry, Henry Ford that you said there, whether you, whether you think you can or you think you can't, I'm like, you're probably right. So you might as well think that you can, even if you, <laughs> you have to be a bit delusional. So I, t I totally get that. And, and you finished on there about um, like failure and not having kind of, if you don't have those realistic goals, what it looks like. So when they do have setbacks, they do have disappointments because most of the time we are not winning because only one, you know, in one race, one person can win. That's it. And there are other, there are other measures of success. And sometimes it's hard for athletes to see that in the moment that you've achieved something that you set out to do. But how do you help them maintain the positive mindset when Although, especially young athletes, sometimes they will even have personal best and still be disappointed because they wanted to win the race or they expected themselves to do better or it's a marginal PB, like 300s, and they're really annoyed by their progress. How do you keep them um, or, or do you keep them and um, to help them maintain that positive mindset? Yeah, well, I think the, I mean, the good news about quote unquote failure is that it's probably a much better conversation starter than success. If things are going well and rolling, you probably don't need to have those conversations with an athlete as much. And the athlete also maybe isn't even as receptive to having a conversation at that point. Like often when something has gone not according to plan, those are the windows you have, even though the conversations may be hard, to actually be able to sit down with the athlete and talk through what exactly is happening. And again, I think you can separate the failure from the person to an extent and explain the context behind why a race didn't go the way they wanted it to. And it's, uh, you know, make it more about the process and the execution than about, you know, the potential individual, but also explain that if you continue to improve upon these areas of execution, that then your race likely will, you know, improve. But I also think it's, prudent to explain to an athlete that 
improvement and success doesn't necessarily happen overnight. It comes from all the choices that they make. Um, I, I deliberately say choices because I don't, I don't think sacrifice is the correct term. We all make choices in order to get better. So, um, you know, I think it all stems from that. And those are the conversation starters that you have. And if you point out to the athlete the things that they can continue improving on, you A, give them like a roadmap onto how they can do better, but also let them know that they're not at the pinnacle of what they can achieve yet and that there are all these different avenues for continued, uh, you know, success in their sport. So, Andreas, this kind of links to the earlier question I asked. So, have you ever had an athlete where their performance level is really struggling, but you start to see a change to them based on the shift in their mindset? Yeah, so... I think probably the most common example I've come across, and it may not even be necessarily struggle with their performance, but it is an instance of where the athlete kind of levels up. It's kind of the inflection point where we say the athlete's talent level matches their experience, where their experience catches up to their talent level. Because you can have very talented athletes, but maybe they just haven't gone through the ringer of racing and doing hard competitions and facing some of the toughest opponents that they will. And once the athlete kind of realizes that, hey, you know what? I can belong. I've raced all these guys before. It's not as intimidating anymore. So once their experience level has caught up to what their actual natural talent level is, that's when they often thrive. And this happens at, there's not an exact point. Like some athletes achieve this at a very young age, and some athletes achieve this at a later age. You know, I think it's very individual as to when this might happen, but I think everyone's kind of experienced, most successful athletes have experienced this at some point. They may be on the start line early in their career and they're like, oh man, I can't believe I'm racing so-and-so. They're all in my heat. And then, you know, a season later or, uh, you know, a couple seasons later or even a couple races later in that same year, they look around, they're like, huh, I've raced all these I've raced all these guys multiple times this year. I'm not phased by that anymore. So once once you kind of have them reach that level of kind of maturity within the sport, I feel like that's when they're at their most dangerous and at their best. And I've seen this over and over again. This happens with a lot of athletes. And it happens as you level up. If you're a junior athlete, you can achieve that on the junior level. And then when you go to like the senior ranks, you have to kind of reestablish that you know, experience versus talent level because all of a sudden the players, some of the players may be the same because they've come up with you, but some of them may be different again. So it's, again, kind of getting comfortable in that environment. And, uh, you know, so there may be several steps and stages where you need to kind of recalibrate that. So you mentioned a lot about um, the athletes as their individuals and their own progress and their own performance and what they're focused on. But we all know that, you know, you, you work with many athletes. And so just asking, how does that team, that the team ethics, how does how do you promote that positive um, and supportive culture around your team to help them manage their own well-being with, within sport? Yeah, well, fortunate in my situation, I kind of get to, you know, select the athletes I want to work with. So obviously I try to bring in athletes that I feel like are a good cultural fit from, um, from that standpoint, it, I'm not a very, it also comes down to me knowing who I am as a coach because that really helps build the group as well. Like I'm a very laid back, chill, relaxed person, 
um, we have a lot of fun at practice. So if you're an athlete who's very talented, but they're not, you're not very motivated and you need someone to kind of drag your talent out of you every single day, like kicking and screaming and pushing you every single day to kind of maximize your talent, I'm probably not the right coach for you. But if you're an athlete who, you know, who is very self-motivated and just needs someone who's like a steadying and calming influence on you, I'll probably work a lot better with an athlete like that. And there are other coaches who do really well with the athletes I said maybe I'm not best suited for. But that again comes down to, you know, not just knowing the athlete, but knowing your own self as to who you feel like you're going to be able to reach mm. and who you're going to be able to communicate with and who will function well together in a group setting. And, you know, generally too, within a group, if I bring in new athletes, I'll also consult the senior athletes like, hey, do you know this person? Do you know this individual? Would they, do you get along with them? Will they be a good fit with what we're doing? Not just from a, from a right. training standpoint, but also a personality standpoint. And if you have a solid core, I do feel like you can take a chance on an athlete or two uh, because then the group will kind of absorb them into what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you can't have too many, you can't have too many risky projects along the way uh, <laughs> or that might, you know, that might be uh, bad for team culture in general. So those are kind of some ways that I try to kind of consider, you know, team culture and balance things out. And, you know, the fun thing about track athletes is too, they're, they tend to have very short attention spans. So they're often very good at, you know, we can be joking and laughing and having a good time uh, throughout training. But when it comes down to the important parts, like they can focus in really, really quickly. So I think also allowing them to kind of let go and re-enter a stage of focus is very important. Because most track athletes, if you ask them to like focus for like, or even just kids nowadays with, you know, cell phones and, you know, social media and all these things. If you tried to ask them to focus for like 30 minutes straight, they would burn out. That's a really yeah. hard thing for them to do. So yeah. allowing them to kind of let go, of, uh, let go of focus, but then bring them back into focus, I think is also very valuable in terms of allowing them to have some freedom to do what they need to do, but then also making sure that we stay on task and get done what we need to get done. So don't get me wrong. I'm by saying laid back, that doesn't mean I'm not demanding and I don't, you know, push athletes to be their best version of themselves. But if, you know, we also have fun in the process while we're doing it. So Andreas, this is the last question I'm going to ask. So this question links to you, but also links to, to athletes in general. So, how do you maintain a work-life balance and not allow the stresses of coaching have an impact on your personal life? And how would athletes that you coach, how would they do the same thing? Okay, well, um, I guess I'll start off by saying that if you really want to be a high achiever, I think work-life balance is pretty much a myth. You kind of have to make a decision uh, what's important to you and kind of center your life around those things. Now, that doesn't mean that you can be on task the entire time, but I don't think you'll have a, a complete balance between, you know, work and life, because especially as an athlete, even when you're not training, a lot of things that you do center around your goals and your performance, namely, you know, are you sleeping enough? Are you hydrating? Are you getting treatment? Are you doing, you know, different types of, uh, you know, homework that your coach may have assigned to you? Are you uh, studying your event? Do you understand what it takes to be successful in your event? So I think a full form of balance is not really possible in that measure, nor probably not productive to 
you know, high achievers. It's sl definitely slanted towards your overall preference and outcome. And that's the same for coaching, right? That's kind of the danger of coaching. Unfortunately, you see a lot of coaches get burnt out, but it has to be something that you, it has to be a conscious choice. It has to, you know, it definitely is something that you enjoy. And I mean, if you're doing things that you enjoy, that's a positive in and of itself. Yeah. If you're spending the majority of time doing something that you enjoy, you may not even necessarily need that balance. If you have a job that you hate and that completely sucks and that bores you to the core, then you probably don't want to invest as much into your job or profession. And then you definitely need another outlet or way to balance things out. And it's also important to know, you know, if you have like different burners going, that coaching and training burner is probably going to be really, really high for the a large part of the season and the year. But it's also important to know that if you do get a break, that's when you can actually turn that burner off and turn something else on that you enjoy doing to kind of get yourself a bit of a break along the way. But while you're training, while you're in season, I think there is, you know, I think work-life balance is probably a bad way to look at it if you're a really, really high achiever. So, Andreas, this has been a pleasure. I really enjoyed this episode. Montel, I'm sure you enjoyed this episode as well. I have. It's been a massive insight into, especially at a high level, I think um, we can all guess what people do. And also we all put our presumptions, but it's nice to have that feedback. And also just learning little nuggets that I didn't actually really consider as a developing coach myself in how you navigate just issues and problems around mindset. So thank you for that. And just being so open and honest and telling it as it is, it's been, it's been great. Yeah, my pleasure. And you'll never hear me say I have all the answers. A lot of these come from experience or a lot of these kind of got dropped on me as well. Um, where then I was like, what is going on? I need to figure this out. And then I had to go to my network or ask someone at one of my mentors for help in consultation. So hopefully, you know, some of these stories and, you know, shared experiences are valuable to someone listening and tuning in. Yeah, it's been great. I just want to say on that last thing is that some of the points that you point out are so valuable and I would say missed, like just undervalued in terms of just the culture and actually almost like selection of the right environment, the right group. Some I know that fellow coaches have had issues with things like that, whether it was fellow staff or fellow athletes, because there wasn't that kind of the right mix, um, the right type of person that would fit within a group. And you've showcased how important that actually is as well for performance within a high-performing um, team. So thank you for that. Yeah, my pleasure. And just know that that could look different for any one person, right? Or any one group. Just because it works for, for one group doesn't necessarily mean the same thing is going to work for another. So it's really about finding the combination that works for you or for that particular group. And then, hey, as long as it as long as it works, it doesn't have to look exactly like anyone else's setup or situation. But yeah, surround yourself with good people, I think is, is a great starting point. So yeah, I appreciate you highlighting that point. So yeah, and thanks for having me on. This was, this was a lot of fun. Yes, it's been a pleasure, been a pleasure. For anyone listening for the first time, welcome aboard. For any repeat listeners, welcome back. There'll be plenty more episodes coming soon. Peace. Peace. Peace, deuces. Peace. <laughs>